episode, I welcome Dr. Eric Dinerstein from Resolve. It's so great to be talking to you today. And to start off, I want to talk about you. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do and where you're located? Hi, I'm Eric, and I work at a nonprofit called Resolve in Washington, D.C. And I'm a conservation biologist, so I'm interested in using biology to save wild nature. Okay. I hear you're also an author. I actually have your book right here, What Elephants Know. I'm reading it right now. It is very good. And can you tell us about your books, especially this series on elephants? Um, so I've written a lot of scientific papers, like most scientists. And after a while, I began to realize that I wasn't reaching as large an audience as I would like to, and especially younger people who don't read scientific papers. And so I thought, how could I reach that audience of young people and give them that same sense of awe and inspiration I drew from the natural world? And in particular, the time that I spent when I was only 21 years old in the country of Nepal, in the jungles of Nepal, in the lowlands, working around tigers and rhinos and elephants, and how could I recreate that experience? And so I always imagined someday writing a novel about my life around an elephant stable, getting to know elephants on a daily basis, catching tigers, studying rhinos, doing all the things that I did. But it took me about 43 years to get around to it because first I was writing scientific papers. And then finally, I decided to do that and I came up with this idea of a story told through the eyes of a, a young elephant driver, the youngest in the history of Nepal, who is adopted by a female elephant. He's found as an orphan in the jungle and he's adopted by this female elephant and the head of the elephant stable. The first line of the novel is, my mother is an elephant and my father is an old man with one arm. And that sounds pretty mysterious, but it goes on from there. Yes, well, I thought your book was really inspiring. And okay, were you into technology as a kid? I would say not, other than turning on the TV. <laughs> but I, unlike most of my friends who are biologists, who started out, you know, right from the get-go, turning over rocks and looking for bugs and, and looking for salamanders and wading through tide pools by the ocean edge. I wasn't that interested in the outdoors or nature. I spent most of my young life reading books and watching TV. And it wasn't until later, really till I got to college, that an inherent interest in nature that I think we all have just sparked within me and I decided to become a biologist pretty late, not till I was a junior in college. However, when I was young, maybe in fourth grade, I had the same fascination with dinosaurs that most kids have. And I actually wrote a book about dinosaurs, which I wish I could find now, but um, it's disappeared somewhere. At any rate, uh, I, I did have this love affair with dinosaurs, but then that pretty much evaporated and it didn't resurface my love of nature until I was about 20 years old. What sparked your passion to want to save animals? My passion really draws from my experience joining the Peace Corps when I was 21 years old and being sent to Nepal to ostensibly be the first person to census tigers in a newly created tiger reserve. 
in the lowland jungles of that country. Now, most people think of Nepal as, oh, it's Mount Everest. And, and that's what I thought too. When I was, when I got the first packet of information, I thought I'm going to Nepal. And all I knew is I, I was living in Washington state and I was into, into mountain climbing. And I thought, oh, fantastic. I'll go and be stationed up around Mount Everest and I'll live among the Sherpas and I'll, I'll learn about Tibetan Buddhism and I'll learn to speak Tibetan and maybe I'll never return. And then I got the information and in it were pictures of rhinos and tigers and elephants. And I knew enough biology, even though I didn't know that much, but I knew enough biology that that, that didn't quite jibe with my picture that rhinos and tigers and elephants didn't live up around Mount Everest. In fact, they lived in this lowland strip of jungle at the base of the Himalayas, only about 600 feet above sea level. And it was this, this hot, steamy jungle. In fact, I used to joke is this is where humidity was invented. Um, it was really, really hot and humid. And that's the kind of habitat that tigers and rhinos love. And that's where I got sent. So I had a lot of uh, catching up. Yes, I think tigers are really amazing and I really want to see one in the wild. So you're so lucky to have that experience. That's amazing. Okay, so now let's talk conservation. Can you tell us about your experience coloring the first rhino and why this was so groundbreaking? Rhinos are highly endangered. And so learning about their ecology and behavior is critical to saving them. We were given the chance to put a radio collar, a device that allows us to track rhinos and learn about their lives in the country of Nepal. And so we went out to do this. And the reason that we use uh, radio tracking devices is because the rhinos live in this habitat called riverine grasslands, where the grass gets to be 25 feet tall at the end of the monsoon, the world's tallest grasslands. And so you need some kind of tracking device like that to even find them in that tall grass. So we set out one morning, and this was probably the most exciting day of my life. We went out with 20 elephants and accompanying me was our wildlife veterinarian. And we found this giant male rhino who would be perfect as our first subject of study. And so, we circled it with the elephants and then he approached and darted it using a drug that's about a thousand times more concentrated than morphine. So just a few drops is enough to sedate a several ton rhino. Can you imagine that? How powerful that drug is. So he hit the rhino with a dart and the rhino stood there for about 10 minutes like it's supposed to do as the, the drug took effect and then it started to go to its its hind legs and then to its knees and then lay on the ground and we thought was sound asleep but the vet said let's hold off and let's check and make sure to be safe and so he got off the elephant but we didn't listen to him we all got off the elephants too because we were so excited and we wanted to get started on the work and so to make sure it was asleep he gently poked it with a stick in the behind and much to our surprise the rhino jumped to its feet and ran off and we were astonished because we thought oh this shouldn't have happened and the elephants were trumpeting it was bedlam uh, and i was worried thinking oh my god is this going to be this difficult to capture rhinos from here on out like this is impossible but we found the rhino and we encircled it one more time and then we gave it another injection with a dart gun and it went down and this time it went to sleep and we could wow. we continued 
and we're able to finish all our work. And then the amazing thing is we gave it the antidote to that, that drug in its ear vein. And in 30 seconds, it was back on its feet and out running around. So the magic of modern chemicals used for wildlife science. But that was quite a day. Wow, I can't imagine. But I've actually also collared an animal for. I funded the first reusable elephant collar, and it's currently on oh. an elephant named Tex. And he's just Great. roaming around, and we can track him anytime. So I know how amazing that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were the chief scientist at the World Wildlife Fund in the past. What work mm -hmm. did you do there? At the World Wildlife Fund, I led the science program for 25 years, and I did a lot of things like work on endangered species, uh, create conservation plans for as regions as different as the Chihuahuan Desert, the world's richest desert for, for biodiversity that straddles the U.S. and Mexico, uh, the Galapagos Islands, uh, the Amazon, the Himalayas, uh, New Caledonia, one of the most interesting islands in the world. Uh, quite a few places on earth to try and save nature. And then uh, towards the end, I started to work more on technology, which I've continued at my, my new position at Resolve over the last seven years. That sounds like an amazing job. Okay, so you mentioned the Galapagos Islands. Can you tell us what you did there? Sure. So the Galapagos are one of the most extraordinary island archipelagos in the world. Of course, we all know that this is the place that inspired Charles Darwin to come up with his theory of evolution by natural selection. And you can read the pages of Darwin's books and read articles about evolutionary biology, but until you go to the Galapagos, it's, it's really amazing um, to see the wildlife there that has largely evolved in the absence of humans. It's only really in uh, relatively recently in the island's history that humans have been there. What's also amazing to think about is that Darwin spent only uh, 19 days in the Galapagos and only visited five islands. And that was enough insight for him 20 years later to put down his theory of evolution. That is probably the most powerful theory that exists in science. So what we were doing there is trying to preserve the biological richness, the heritage of those islands from the major threats they face, which is largely due to invasive species um, on land and overfishing in the marine realm. Wow. And so our strategy was to really um, to address those major threats and make sure that the Galapagos Islands persist into the future with all the richness they have now. If you had to pick one or two of the coolest places you have traveled to conduct your research, where would those be? And can you tell us a quick story of an animal encounter? Sure, well, I always go back to Nepal because that's my second home, uh, having moved there when I was 21. And, and between being in the Peace Corps there for two and a half years. And then after my PhD, I went back to become a biologist with the Smithsonian to study rhinos and tigers for five years. I got to know the country very well and the people and learned to speak the language fluently. And so it's, it really is my second home. And, and the Nepalis are such wonderful people. The country is so diverse and rich. Um, I, I guess I have 
so many stories uh, about that. Uh, I, I this is kind of a funny story. Um, how I saw my first tiger. Um, it's not how you think of. You're walking along uh, through the jungle and it just pops out at you. But um, we were taking a, a, a zodiac raft down the mighty Karnali River that was the border of what's now Bardia National Park in Nepal. And I was with my best friend who is Nepali, who taught me everything. He taught me how to track tigers. He taught me how to build tree houses to stay in the jungle at night to look for tigers walking along roads taught me animal tracks. And we were we were going along the, the river and we saw gangetic dolphins, freshwater dolphins, and gharial crocodiles, this rare crocodile that lives uh, in, in the Karnali River. And he said to me, Eric, I have to go to the bathroom. And so, well, we decided, well, let's just pull off on one of these islands. And the islands were covered in rosewood, one of the most beautiful tropical timber trees. And in this dense rosewood jungle, my friend Guggen went off to go find a private place to go to the bathroom. And he was walking along and I lost sight of him. He went into the, into the forest. And then the next thing he came running out with his eyes really wide. And he said, Eric, come quickly, come quickly. There's a sleeping tiger right over here. And so we climbed up the rosewood trees so we wouldn't disturb it and wouldn't get in its way. And we sat and watched it. And it was just sound asleep. It was like 10 in the morning. It must have been hunting the night before. And we sat and we sat and we sat and realized, uh oh, how are we going to get down now? Like, how, what if we disturb the tiger, like the bark breaks off or a branch and we wake it up and we realized we were kind of trapped in the tree. And so finally I thought, well, I'll just talk to it. And so I said in a loud voice, wake up, sleeping king of the jungle. And the tiger didn't do anything. And I said, wake up. And then it still didn't do anything. And then I shouted, wake up. And it roared and jumped about 14 feet and then headed off in the other direction. And we went back to our boat. And that was my first tiger. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. That, that would have been crazy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> After that, yeah. it wasn't as exciting. Other times I saw them. But tigers are so secretive that in my first two years there, I probably saw more tigers when we actually captured them for research than I did just going through the jungle. They, they really are great at hiding from people and, and from jeeps or elephants. Yeah, so I know that would be amazing. I really want to see a tiger in the wild. So that's amazing story. Okay, so now I'm going to jump back to technology. So you mm -hmm. developed a technology called TrailGuard AI. Can you tell us mm -hmm. about it? Sure, I'd be happy to. We've been working for the last seven years on a way to better protect wildlife and study them, protect them from poachers and study them so that we can learn more about their biology and how to better protect them. And one of the real problems is that we need to put sensors in the field that can last a long time without having to go and replace the batteries every two months. And it has to be really smart. So it has to use the latest in AI or machine learning to recognize objects that we want it to recognize and then filter it so that it discards all the objects that it takes pictures of that aren't of any interest to us and only recognizes and sends us the ones that are of interest. So that, re that requires training models, neural networks 
that I think your audience is going to learn more about to recognize, say, a tiger or an elephant or a wolf or a rhinoceros and only send those, those images when the computer model recognizes that as a tiger, an elephant, a rhino. And that's, that's the first part. But if we did only that, we'd just have a really smart camera and we'd still have to go there and get the images off the SD card and look at them, you know, a month later, months later. But what if these were poachers who were coming to shoot elephants? You'd want to have that instantly, wouldn't you? Go back to the headquarters to alert the rangers. So the other piece that we've had to invent is a way of transmitting those images really fast, either using cell connectivity, cell networks, like a cell phone, or where there's no cell connectivity, which is in much of Africa and much of the world where wild animals live, a different way to connect. And we've done that as well using a low-cost satellite modem that connects directly to a satellite and into the internet. We've recently detected poachers coming into parks in Africa where the intruders triggered the motion sensor of the camera and it took only 50 seconds from it to go from the camera to the cell tower to the, the network to the internet to a server and back to the headquarters, 50 seconds. Wow. And then the rangers could wow. go out and try to get them. So we're, we're now trying to put this out in parks across Africa over the next two years and elsewhere in the world. And so we work with um, a company that makes the, the neural networks that does the, ma the machine learning basically for our cameras so we can apply it to all sorts of things. Even examples like putting them out in the Galapagos Islands where I used to work, where it could identify rats that have gotten onto islands that shouldn't be there and eat the eggs of birds or eat lizards that are native and send an alert to say, oh, we've just eradicated rats on this island, but they've come back because we have a picture of a rat that we send instantly uh, back to the biosecurity officers. So we can use this technology in all sorts of ways. It's only our imaginations that limit us to how can we apply computer vision to be our eyes on the natural habitats. Wow. Your cameras sound absolutely amazing. And okay, how long did it actually take you to develop these cameras and what was the most challenging part? Uh, it's taken a couple of years uh, of trial and error. Um, we, we had a first version that worked three years ago um, near in the Serengeti of Africa, but that didn't have as good of AI that we have now. So it's taken us probably the last year to really improve the AI greatly. And, and it's only been in the last few months that we've invented an, a new way of transmitting the images successfully and quickly. So it's all coming together this year. And of course, it's a little challenging for us to try to, uh, to deploy these in Africa with COVID and not being able to travel. So we do it all over Zoom. Um, we actually meet with the people in the parks we ship them the equipment, and fortunately, it's so simple, you just plug everything in and it all works. So they can set it up really easily. How many cameras have actually been placed out in the wild, and are, are they doing their jobs? Are they identifying poachers? Yes, we, we, we try to keep it a secret how many are out there now, but um, and, and where they are, because 
we're under obligation of the parks that we work with that not to to share that information but our goal is to have we've moved our production to china so we've developed the cameras with intel corporation we use their uh, computer vision chip inside our camera to have a, a camera have have computer vision what's called on the edge meaning in the device itself rather in than in the cloud so that's a really important distinction um, that maybe you know your audience will, will, will like to learn about like why on the edge is is really the direction that all technology is going the reason we do that is rather than if you didn't have the inference if you didn't have the machine learning programs running in the camera then the camera would just send all the images that it took um, over the cell network or over the satellite modem and you'd waste so much of the battery doing that because typically maybe 75 to 95 percent of the images you take are false positives they're of no interest to you um, or they might be of like zebra and wildebeest which are nice animals but but you don't need to see those for this purpose of stopping poachers you want to see just humans so by filtering all those images on the edge in the camera itself and only sending the true positives you greatly save on battery life so that's critical so now that we have that we can spread this around to parks in africa so our goal is by the end of next year to be in a hundred parks in africa and so we're wow, scaling yeah. up by producing these in china to make them really cheap um, at a factory that intel has found for us and then transfer these to parks in, China, in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and even here in the US. Yeah, I can imagine that would be difficult to make it, you know, recognize humans. Okay, so now can you tell me about the global safety net that you partnered together with the organization called One Earth? What is this safety net doing? Nature is key to rebalancing our global climate system and ensuring a vibrant future for all. Ecosystems absorb carbon from the atmosphere and produce the essentials for life on our planet. Fresh water, clean air, and healthy soil. Intact natural lands also help to prevent viral outbreaks like COVID-19. Tragically, in the past 50 years, we've lost half of our natural land, destroying two thirds of all living creatures on Earth. We must reverse the damage and we can by creating the Global Safety Net, a network of land areas that are vital for nature and humanity. The Global Safety Net is the first comprehensive estimate of the total land area requiring protection to solve the twin crises of biodiversity loss and climate change. There are six main layers that make up the Global Safety Net. First, are areas already protected by governments, totaling 15% of the planet's land. Second, are species rarity sites. These are additional areas that need to be protected immediately before rare animals and plants are lost forever. Third, are high biodiversity areas, groupings of plants and animals that are vital to maintaining our ecosystems. Fourth, are large mammal landscapes, like the Pantanal wetlands of Western Brazil, home to the world's largest jaguars. Fifth are areas with a large extent of intact wilderness, continuous forests, shrublands, and grasslands. Sixth are land areas that provide additional carbon absorption and storage, helping to stabilize our global climate system. 
The Global Safety Net also incorporates an analysis of potential wildlife corridors, areas of degraded land that can be restored to connect ecosystems back together, allowing nature to be more resilient as the earth warms. Taken together, the layers of the Global Safety Net total approximately 50% of the world's land, offering a blueprint to restore our biosphere, helping to keep global temperature rise below 1.5 degrees Celsius and providing the ecosystem services vital to our survival. Over one third of these lands are communally held by indigenous peoples, which demonstrates the importance of safeguarding territorial rights for these communities. You can explore the global safety net through a new web application, which displays how every country and region can contribute in different ways towards this common goal. Visit gsnapp.org to learn more about your region and how it can contribute towards a world in which nature and humanity coexist and thrive together. We're at a real crisis point in the history of life on Earth and in our efforts to maintain a living biosphere. We have the climate crisis. We have the biodiversity crisis, where we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction event in the history of, of Earth. We also have uh, an era where pandemics are occurring more rapidly. We have had 14 what we call zoonotic spillovers, 14 examples of where diseases have spilled over from animals to humans just in this century alone, since 2000. And we're also facing the collapse of ecosystems like coral reefs. So it's a pretty serious situation. We came up with a safety net because we felt that there is a way, there is a hopeful pathway out of these four great threats to, to defeat them and have a living biosphere again for, for the future. And the way to do that was to come up with, based on the science, what we need to protect and where we need to avoid greenhouse gas emissions, and what are the most important places to conserve for nature, and put that all together on a map so that we could see exactly what we have to do. And that's the purpose of the safety net. It's the first time ever of mapping out how we save life on Earth. And now, can you briefly explain the global deal for nature? Sure. Most people know about the Paris Climate Accord, and that's an effort that's signed by almost every country on Earth to try to find a way to avoid the climate crisis or the worst of the climate crisis that we face now. And what scientists have done is they've come up with one number that makes it really easy to understand, which is that for order for, for us, for humanity to have a future, and scientists say for ecosystems not to unravel, we have to stay below 1.5 degrees centigrade rise in global average temperature. That, that's our threshold. We can't go above that. If we get to two degrees centigrade, things like coral reefs start to bleach out and die off or rainforests turn to savannas. It will change everything. And so we have to stay below 1.5. But on the biodiversity side, we don't really have that number, that single, that 1.5. So for biodiversity, our 1.5 is we have to protect 50% of the planet, terrestrial and marine. If we do that, then that gives us a pathway to stay below 1.5, because as it turns out, the two are interdependent. We can't 
we can't solve the climate crisis without solving the biodiversity crisis, and we can't solve the biodiversity crisis without solving the climate crisis. So the two have to work together, and that's our goal. The Global Deal for Nature is that plan of how to have a deal among nations, just like the Paris Climate Accord, and have the two of them interact. Wow, that is amazing. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, okay, so now let's talk about taking action. What can my generation do in terms of conservation and technology to help save wildlife and wild spaces? Well, I think you gave that, uh, that link to the global safety net, uh, the app. And if kids go to that, they can zoom in on where they live and they can see, oh, what's around my area? Like, where is the nearest park? Where's the nearest area that's not protected that should be? Where is a corridor that we can help connect to areas? So what the Global Safety Net also does for the very first time is it, it answers the question, what would it take to connect all the world's national parks and intact areas with corridors at least um, a mile and a half wide? How much land would we need? And the answer is only about 2.7% of the Earth's surface to connect all the parks in the world. So there's probably a corridor that runs nearby where some of your listeners live, almost all of them live, and they could get active locally of helping to restore the environment, the natural environment in those corridors. That would be a great place to start. Yes, we will have that video so everybody can go out and do that. And now my final question, do you think my generation is capable of learning this technology now before it's too late? Absolutely. I'm really amazed at how kids your age pick up on not only using computers, but learning things like uh, machine learning or AI, because this was something that really only has been invented re relatively recently. And a lot of the new technology that the new kinds of the new technology that's coming out now didn't exist five years ago. And so we're heading into this world where things are miniaturized, they're lower power, um, they're, they're, they're being able to perform all of these tasks that were, we could only dream of 10 years ago. And the key to learning how to make these systems work is learning the computer programs that, that make them operate. And the kids who are interested in uh, learning how to write code and learning these programs will really be in the lead for helping us use technology to save life on Earth. Wow, you are really helping saving our planet. And I know that my generation can help. Thank you so much for letting me interview today. It was amazing hearing everything you do and all the work you've been doing. Thank you. You're most welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today. Everybody click on the links below to see how Resolve is using technology to help save endangered animals. Let's go! La, 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 la.